in our consideration of the question, what do we know about limitations imposed upon the exercise of God's loving kindness and mercy from the Bible, we were in process of setting forth the advent and work of Christ as a divine necessity in the free pardon of sins. Several scriptures had been considered as to how the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, voluntarily humbled himself to identify himself with our humanity through the virgin birth. He came because God so loved the world and purposed its salvation. In his lifetime, our Lord manifested true compassion, which the world had never before seen, and went everywhere healing the sick and doing good. We come now to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 6 where our blessed Lord also asserted his authority to forgive sins. Based upon his redemptive work soon to be accomplished, we'll read from verse 2, And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then said he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thy house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power to men. This was acknowledged by his opposers to be only the prerogative of God, as we read in the parallel account of Mark, chapter 2 and verse 7. Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? They said, Who can forgive sins but God only? So our Lord Jesus Christ assumed the prerogative of the forgiveness of sin. But in John chapter 1 and verse 11, we have it revealed that our Lord Jesus was dealing with his own possessions when he was dealing with mankind. For there we read, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. What an impossible tragedy to conceive that the Lord Jesus, who had been instrumental in creating man, now was rejected by man. In Matthew 7 and verse 29, we read that he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. His learning was independent of this world and thus was brought into this world with divine authority. In the fourth chapter of Luke, verses 31 and 32, we read that folk were astonished at his doctrine and came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. He spoke with divine authority, unlike any who had spoken before him in this respect. In John chapter 7 and verse 46, we read that even his enemies were spellbound by the profound difference of his words and mannerisms. For we read, when the officers were sent, they answered, 
Never man spake like this man. But Jesus was not at their mercy during his sojourn on earth, but under the protecting hand of God. If he had not, he would have very quickly been put to death, as was the case by his fellow citizens there at Nazareth, as they were determined at the beginning of his ministry thus to put him to death. In the fourth chapter of Luke, verses 28 to 30, after our Lord had delivered his discourse in the synagogue at Nazareth, we read that there were great turmoils going on. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up, and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill, whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But notice the calm reaction of our blessed Lord, because the power of Almighty God was upon him. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Our Lord Jesus was not at the mercy of the mob during his lifetime. He was inerrantly and forcibly protected by the great and glorious power of God. And so in John chapter 7 and verse 30 we read, No man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. But it was impossible that the Old Testament scheme of sacrifices could take away the sins of the world. They could only avail as a pattern or a type portraying the great Lamb of God who should bear away the sins of the world. And so our Lord Jesus uh, proposed the necessity of his sacrifice. In Hebrews 10 and verse 4 we read, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. And so our Lord Jesus is reported to have declared to his disciples the tragic necessity of his atoning sacrifice. And although they delighted so in his presence, yet the tragic hour of their separation was soon to come. We read in the 24th chapter of Luke in verse 7, where our Lord Jesus said during his lifetime, as the record declares, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. So here was the tragic necessity of the atoning work of Christ if men were to be forgiven. Now for the first time, all was to be different. Now he was to be delivered to men as their Savior. What would they do with him? Would they receive him? And so, as persecution intensified and the hour approached when our blessed Lord would offer himself for the sins of the whole world, we read in Luke chapter 22, verses 52 to 4, these words, Then said Jesus unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me. This they refrained from doing, as we have said, because of the mighty power of God. But now things were to be different. But this is your hour and the power of darkness, our Lord Jesus said. What a profound change this verse indicates. 
our Lord Jesus was to be delivered over as the Savior of men, for man to treat him as he would. Then took they him, and led him, and brought him into the high priest's house. Peter, in a most abrupt fashion, later on in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost, explained this situation when he delivered this great message after the anointing and fullness of the Holy Spirit, which had just been poured out. The record in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 reads something like this, Him, or this one, having been appointed by the purpose and forethought of God to be given over through the hand of wicked men, having fastened to the cross, ye lifted up from the ground. Now it's interesting from this text that there are a number of words that have been rendered that are omitted from the original. Doubtless these unfinished phrases were supplied by Peter's violent gestures. He charged the mass of men with putting to death of Christ, whose life they voluntarily rejected. In a later sermon he affirmed that they killed the prince of life, as in Acts 3.15. The apostle Paul also affirmed that in their voluntary ignorance, the enemies of Christ had crucified the Lord of glory, as you read in 1 Corinthians 2.8. But even Pilate found it was no use to entreat the mob. Up came the cry, as you read in Luke chapter 23, verse 21. Crucify him! Crucify him! They preferred a criminal's release to our blessed master. Then Pilate made the sad compromise with his convictions, which we never read of, that he repented. He delivered Jesus to their will. After a weary trek amidst the weeping of some few sympathizers, we read in Chapter 23, verse 33 of Luke, these sad words. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And so the tragic destiny of the Immaculate Son of God, the Prince of Life, the Lord of Glory, came to be thus, at the hands of men. But in the 19th chapter of John and verse 19, we have one of the superscriptions. And so Pilate insisted on this much, that his true identity be made known according to his own convictions. He made a sign and had it put on the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. There, after expressing kindness and forgiveness toward those who had been the instruments of putting him to death, and after dealing in mercy with the repentant thief and tenderly bidding adieu to his mother who had nourished him in the flesh, he appears to have been suddenly conscious of an absence of the sympathizing power of God the Father and cried in anguish, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As is recorded in Matthew 27, 46. During his lifetime, things were different. 
He stood at the grave of Lazarus with the utmost confidence and consciousness of fellowship with the Father. As we read in the 11th chapter of John's Gospel and verses 41 and 42, Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. Here's the grave of Lazarus. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. So here is manifested the inner tender confidence of the Father. But now something new had taken place. He must suffer for the anguish of sin alone without heaven's sustaining power. But we must continue our meditation. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank Thee for the glorious gospel which Thou hast given us to proclaim, as to how our Lord Jesus came into the world to die for the sins of the whole world, and how He bore the sins of the whole world in His holy heart and died of the anguish of their weight. How we pray that many may repent of sin, come to the Savior in humility, confessing sin, obtain forgiveness through faith in his death, go on in happy service now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.